I want to read, uh, on top of the passage that Paul read, I want to read one other uh, passage of Scripture from Zephaniah. By the way, uh, Paul, does, Paul does everything so well that whenever he blows it or makes a mistake, I like to point it out, just so we have the semblance of equality. And, and uh, if you guys were really listening to him, then, then when the offering came around, you should have been going like this with your brochures. Because if you were listening carefully, he said, please flap the tears off. Did you hear that? I say you got to flap the tears off. And <laughs> now we're equal. Zephaniah chapter 3, a passage about the joy of the Lord. Starting with verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away your punishment, and he has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. Listen to these words. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, and he is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The Lord will rejoice over you, over you with singing. Picture a parent singing over his child or her child. Because of the joy that this child brings, the Lord will sing over you with joy. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your presence here this morning in the worship and the way you make yourself real to your people as we yield to you. I thank you for your word which informs us and strengthens us and guides us and empowers us and convicts us. Lord, I'm very aware and we're very aware that the power of your word depends upon your spirit, not on one's ability to speak it. Because we can't ever speak it big enough, we can't ever speak it clear enough to get to the heart of the issues in our life. We need your spirit here this morning, Lord. That's your jurisdiction, that's your responsibility. We yield to you, Lord, and say, have your way, Lord, here this morning. There are those here this morning that wrestle on a regular basis with melancholy, Lord, with depression, with despair, with discouragement. And I pray, Lord, that this word about joy would really find a lodging in their heart and begin to, the work of transformation to becoming a joyful person that you desire for them. In your name we pray. Amen. We're talking about change in our life. This is the third or fourth sermon in a... In a eight-part series on change. And more specifically, what we're, the change we're talking about is a change regarding the fruit of the Spirit, acquiring what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, the characteristics that are associated with what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, as in the passage that Paul read earlier in Galatians chapter 5, is singular. There's one fruit of the Spirit. There's not many fruits of the Spirit, like apples, oranges, peaches, pears, pineapples. There's one fruit. But that fruit has different characteristics, different aspects to it. In the same way that a single, the single fruit of apple is red and juicy and round, but it's all one fruit, so also the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. They're all different aspects of the one thing that the Spirit produces in our life. When the Spirit of God is working in a person's life, 
and a person is yielded to the Spirit of God in their life, the Spirit will produce one thing, and that is the fruit of the Spirit, Christ-like characteristics. In the same way that, as we've been seeing the last couple of weeks, if you have poison in your life, if you've got food poisoning in your life, spiritual poisoning in your life, contamination, that's going to also produce a fruit. When you're sick, the analogy we've been using the last couple of weeks is that when you've got food poisoning, what you bring forth is vomit. You've got to get it out. It's, it's the natural thing to do when you're sick. So also the natural thing for the Christian being led by the Spirit of God is to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. It's a natural thing. The fruit of the Spirit are characteristics that belong to God by nature and are given to us by grace. Love, joy, peace, patience, these are things that belong to God by his eternal nature. But his desire is to give them to us by grace. And the way that we receive them by grace, and we touched on this last week, the way we, we receive them by grace is not by working hard at having them, because then they'd be fruit of our effort, not fruit of the Spirit. The way they begin to be produced in our life is by yielding to the Spirit who points us to Jesus Christ. The scriptural principle in operation here is that we become what we see. You become what you see. There's a story in the Old Testament about Jacob. It's, it's a very strange story. and Maybe I shouldn't have even gotten into it, but it's this weird story. and I can't explain it now, but, but there's these cows, or maybe it's sheep. Cows are sheep. And, and Jacob wants to out-trick this other guy. Some of you know this story. And he puts two poles in front of uh, different kinds of sheep or cows, and one of them is striped and one of them is not striped, and then he prays, God, make those cows or sheep <laughs> that are looking at this pole, the ones who look at the striped one become striped, and the ones who don't, don't become striped. <laughs> it's a really bizarre story. <laughs> and all that is simply to bring out a, a, a scriptural principle, and that is that you become what you see. You become what you see. It's a biblical principle. You become what you hear. You, you become what you absorb. God made us that way. He wired us that way. He geared us that way because he wants to be the one that we look at. He wants to be the object of worship and adoration. And the more we gaze at the Lord, the more Christ-like we become. What belongs to him by nature becomes ours by grace. It's true that you are what you eat. That's true at a physical level. It's also true at a spiritual level. You are what you absorb, what goes into you. That same principle, however, works against us when we're in a fallen world. We will become what we see, what we hear, what we think, what we absorb. We will become that, for better or for worse. And in a fallen world that is full of pollution, that's what we become. And that is what blocks the fruit of the Spirit being produced in the Christian's life. We absorb poison. And the essence of this poison we saw last week, the essence of the poison is deception. Deception. A lie. What the world communicates as being true is not true, but we experience it as being true to the degree that we're poisoned by it. This is what Paul calls the flesh. The flesh. It has to do with the worldview that you have, the spectacles that you wear, the way you interpret the world, what you experience is true. And in a fallen world, we're creatures of our environment to a large degree. That's how God made us. We're dependent. And when you are in a poisoned environment, we become poison. And so instead of having the fruit of God's love, we produce literally the vomit of hatred or bitterness or apathy. And instead of having the fruit of God's joy, we produce depression. Because the poison is there. Instead of having peace, we produce the vomit of anxiety and despair. Instead of having patience, we produce the fruit 
of compulsiveness, and so on and so on. And you can have, as we've seen so far in the last several weeks, all the rules to try to legislate that. You can have all the do's and the don'ts. You can have all the legal, scriptural, regimented lists that you want to try to keep that ungodly behavior in check, try to keep people from be looking as sick as they really are. But all you'll succeed is in doing, and all legalism ever does, is manipulate behavior so that the person doesn't look the way they really are. So that the sick no longer look sick. They look healthy, but they're not healthy. They're really sick. You camouflage the problem rather than really get to the heart, getting to the heart of the problem. Legalism doesn't work because the problem is deeper than behavior. It shoots at behavior, but behavior is the symptom of the problem, not the problem itself. To address the problem, you've got to address the problem. And what we saw last week is this. The way to get to the heart of the problem, the scriptural way to get to the heart of the problem is by hearing what Jesus says. When he says in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth. And the truth shall set you free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. When you know, not just in an intellectual way, but in a heart way, with your, with your emotions, in the core of your being, when you know the truth, you are set free. When you experience the truth as being true, instead of experiencing the, the lie of the enemy as being true, then change begins to come, uh, come about in your life. Then you begin to bear the fruit of the Spirit. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The Lord says in John 17 to the Father, Thy word is truth. And when we begin to absorb the word of God and the truth of who Jesus is, as opposed to the deception and the polluted world around us, then we begin to be changed. That solution contrasts with legalism. But it also contrasts with a, a, another solution that, that, that people have proposed to bring it about change in our life. And I want to say a word about this. Whereas... Christians tend to focus on behavior, and we try to change people by getting them to act differently, by threats and rewards and that kind of stuff. There's also a widespread movement in our culture, and it's beginning to creep into Christianity, that kind of does the opposite thing. What I, I call this becoming a victim of victimization. And what this school of thought says is this, and it's all around in secular psychology, and as I said, it's beginning to infiltrate the church, the way to overcome your problems, the way to change, is by finding the source of your problem and blaming it. Now follow me on this. We have a widespread cultural pathos, as it were, that says this. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. You're a poor victim. You can't help it. And what you need to do is blame. Find the person to blame or find the event to blame. There's a shirt that, that, that was printed, and some people still wear this. Uh, don't, don't blame me, blame my parents. Have you seen that? That's exactly what I'm talking about. And there's some truth to that sometimes. But this school of thought, this victimization school of thought, carries a lot fur further than that. Where all of your problems, all of the behavioral issues in your life, all of the depression and all of the dysfunctions in your life, are someone else's fault or some, something, else, something else's fault. Blame it on my genes. I can't help it. Blame it on my genes. I was born this way. And so, if your genes are a little bit screwed up, then you can't help be but the way you are. There's no free will here. There's no choice here. And so, what we have now is a widespread movement to say that homosexuality is okay because some believe there's some evidence that you're born with a disposition towards that. It's not my fault. Blame my parents. Blame my grandparents. Blame my genes. Blame my environment. Blame my upbringing. 
It's their fault. Blame society. Blame the devil. The devil made me do it. So you have the alcoholic who basically says, hey, I can't help myself. This is just the way I am. It's because of my genetic makeup. It's because my father was an alcoholic. It's because of my bad upbringing. I'm just the way I am. It bothered me a little bit, uh, more than a little bit, but I'm trying to be mild and sedate here. Uh, but, but last summer, when, when the, these L.A. riots broke out, what I heard a lot of was, 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 was this, that, uh, you know, gee, this is inevitable, this is, you know, this is understandable, this is okay, and, and, and really what we need to do is just understand that, that there's a social oppression here, there's poverty here, there's, there's racial tension here, and that explains pretty much everything, and when you put people in that kind of situation, they're going to go murder people, they're going to go kill people, and you had people in leadership positions kind of prophesying this, if the right decision isn't made, and you're already kind of prejudging what the right decision is, well, then this is going to break out. It's inevitable. And while those kind of considerations of society and, and racial tension make us maybe understand somewhat some of the behavior there, nothing excuses killing 50 people or tearing down your, your own neighborhood. You see... What this school of thought misses is that there's an element of personal responsibility here. Blaming people, getting mad, getting angry at your upbringing and society and the things that make you the way you are and that maybe to some degree contribute to you having the problems that you have is a necessary stage to go through. It's, it's something that you've got to go through. Maybe you need to get mad at your parents. Get mad at your parents. Maybe you need to be angry. Maybe you, you know, that, that in itself is a way sometimes of being a little bit empowered, of rising above it. But it's a stage that you need to go through. It's not a stopping point. You need to go through it. It's, it's something that has to be temporary. And I really believe that the worst thing you can do to a person who is in a victimized situation, the worst thing you can do is to get them to lock into that victimized mentality. You become what you see. That's how we're wired. And if the only thing you see about yourself, the only thing you think about yourself, if this is the stopping point, that you think see yourself as a victim of whatever, then you're going to eternalize yourself in that framework. You'll never be free from that. You'll always be enslaved to that. Your whole life will be a footnote to what your parents did or what your brother did or what society did or what another race did. And really, it's a form of deception. It's part of the deception of the flesh that we've been talking about. Because what's Integral into this deception of the flesh that we've been talking about is the view that what defines you as an independent human being is something other than God. You are what you do. You are what is done to you. You are nothing over and above the factors that went into you. You see with Genesis 3 all over the place. In fact, it's kind of interesting. In Genesis 3, what's the first thing that Adam and Eve do? When they fall and they confront God, the God of truth, what's the first thing they do? They blame. They blame. Adam blames Eve. The woman that you gave me, you, kind of blaming God. And Eve says, it's a serpent. Everyone passes the buck. And there's some truth to that, isn't there? I mean, Adam, strictly speaking, wasn't telling a lie. He just wasn't telling the whole truth. And Eve wasn't telling a complete lie. There's a half-truth there. But what they tried to run away from, and this is kind of the, 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 the pathos of our culture right now, is you run away from moral responsibility. The dimension of moral responsibility that is there in your life. And when we do that, here, here's, the, here's the point, when we do that, we will not change. When you become locked into your victimized mentality, 
and you get locked into your resentment and get locked into your anger and get locked into, into your inability to forgive and define your whole life in terms of what's been done to you. You've just taken away any power to change because you become what you see. The hope for change is gone with that. The truth of the matter is this, and even in this pathos, in this, in, in this uh, cultural uh, milieu that we're in, it even sounds uncompassionate to say this. But here's the truth. The truth is that someone made in the image of God, someone created by God and saved by the Son of God, need be no one's victim. Need be no one's victim. As bad... As bad as the upbringing may be, as bad as the factors that make you the way you are with all of your problems and dysfunctions may be, and they may be bad, and I don't want to ever undermine that, but as bad as they may be, God is greater. As bad as the social environment you were raised in may be, God is greater. The Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. God is greater. And so the word that we need to hear as we begin to consider change in our life is this. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And if your parents, if your parents did a poor job raising you, and maybe did worse than a poor job raising you, then maybe you need to get mad at them and get angry at them for a time and get through that stage, but you need to know that the truth can set you free. And if your cultural environment has been bad, the truth can set you free. And if you were born with genes that are maybe somewhat screwed up, and you have a homosexual inclination, or maybe you have kind of a perverse heterosexual inclination, and in a fallen world, it's not unthinkable that people might be born with that kind of genetic problem. You can still hear, and you need to hear, if you're ever going to change, you've got to hear the truth, that the truth can set you free, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. There's the possibility of being transformed. Because God reigns, there's a possibility always of being transformed. And if your father raged at you, and if you've been the object of racial oppression or gender oppression or economic oppression, you need to hear the truth. And the truth is that you can know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Don't become a victim of victimization. That, that, that's the point here. Nothing can stagnate change worse. Except for legalism, nothing stagnates change worse than becoming a victim of, of victimization. Being enslaved to seeing yourself as a footnote to somebody else's abuse. Being enslaved to seeing yourself as a footnote to society's problems. And nothing over and above that. You need to get mad. We want to be a place where you can get mad. If you're sick, vomit. We want to be okay with that. It's something, maybe you need to be mad at your parents. Maybe you need to, to rebel and rage. Maybe you need to be angry at, at race relationships or whatever. Do it. Do it. You need to go through that. That's an empowering thing. Unless you get stagnant in it. Unless it becomes a permanent way of life for you. A permanent mindset for you. The way you define yourself. And it can happen. And it is happening all over the place. Go through that stage, but go through it. And the ultimate goal is this. If you want to be free to be the person that God created you to be and not simply a footnote to past events in your life or present events in your life, the ultimate goal is forgiveness. You're never free from those polluting influences in your life until you release them by forgiving them. And I'm not talking about a shadow little mimsy-pimsy, oh, I forgive you because the pastor said I'm supposed to forgive you. Don't do that. But I'm talking about arriving at a forgiveness in your heart where you really feel released from them. 
when you're angry, you know, when, when you're angry, this is the delusion of it. When you're angry and you're bitter and you're ticked off and you're mad, you feel empowered. You feel righteous. Kind of a moral superiority. Moral superiority runs rampant where people are victim of victimization. You feel empowered and you, you feel free from them. I'm mad at her. The truth is you're enslaved. You're enslaved and they've got the power over you. Freedom only comes when we arrive at forgiveness. I'm not talking about cheap forgiveness. I'm not talking about denial forgiveness that denies that there's ever a problem. Just know what the goal is. The goal is to arrive at forgiveness. Last thing to say about this. There's always two dimensions involved in all sin. There's always two dimensions involved in all the issues that we're talking about. The apathy, the anger, the depression, the melancholy, the, 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 the promiscuity in our life, or whatever it is that you wrestle with. There's two dimensions. One is social and one is individual. And the Bible has both. The Bible clearly articulates both. There's a balance here. On the social end of it, the Bible says in Deuteronomy, the sins of the fathers are visited on the second and third and fourth generation. The Bible's very aware that part of who we are is the result of who our parents were, the result of what our culture is, the result of who the devil is, the result of the fallen world. We are all to some degree victims, some much more than others, but all of us are to some degree victims. There's a social dimension here. The Bible's aware of that. At the same time, the Bible says in Ezekiel, quotes that same verse, and says, don't excuse yourself by saying the sins of the fathers are visited on the second and third and fourth generation. Don't let that be an excuse, a cop-out. Because when you do, then there's no hope for you ever rising above that. There's a social dimension and an individual dimension. The individual dimension says, okay, fine, I understand where, I understand how I got this way, but I still take responsibility for my life because I am an individual, I have free will, I can make decisions, and I can, at least to some degree, transcend or rise above the social factors that have been there in my life. When we overstress the social dimension of sin, well, the social dimension of sin should rightfully make us compassionate to one another. Understanding the social dimension of sin helps us to understand why people are the way they are, and that should move us to compassion. If you knew what this person was going through, maybe you wouldn't be so quick to judge them, whatever their behavior is like. If you could see the world from the inside of their shoes, and if you had happened to you what happened to them, maybe you wouldn't be so quick to pronounce judgment on them. And we need to have that in relationship to one another because it's not our position to judge. And we need to see the areas of wounds that we need to be healed from. If that's overstressed, however, what you end up is with people becoming a victim of victimization and being disempowered rather than empowered and becoming footnotes to society or their parents or what have you. The individual aspect of sin says this, that when all is said and done, we to some degree are morally responsible for who we are because God gave us free will. If that is overstressed and you ignore the social uh, repercussions of people's sin, then you end up with, uh, with legalism. Don't give me all this mammy pammy about how you raise it, da da da. It's your decision, you're responsible, and then we end up blaming the person completely for all that they are. There's a balance that needs to be struck here, a balance. There is a social dimension and there is an individual dimension. If you balance it, you'll never fall into the error of legalism. If you balance it, you'll never fall into the error of becoming a victim of victimization. Both of those preclude change from ever happening. Let's apply this to talking about joy this morning, the fruit of the Spirit, which is joy. The first aspect Paul mentions is love. The second aspect is joy. Man, it is hot in here today. We're cooking this morning. It's a hot service. I'm going to be drenched. 
I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but Jesus promised two things to his disciples, two things that initially appear incompatible. He promised on the one hand that they would have joy, that they would have joy unspeakable. Jesus promised his disciples, those who would receive him, that there would be available to them this profound joy, this unconditional joy, a joy that the world cannot give. He promised them joy. At the same time, and sometimes even in the same verse, he promised them suffering. He promised them suffering. Don't think that the servant is above the master. If the master suffered, then so will the servants. Christians should expect to suffer. You shall, he says, he promises, you shall fall into, into tribulations, and you shall be persecuted, but don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, how is it that the Lord can promise us joy, incredible joy, but also promise us suffering? How do you put those two together? The answer, I think, is this. Joy is not the same as happiness. When we talk about joy, we're not talking about happiness. Happiness is the result of good fortune. Happiness is having the right things go the right way, having things turn out the way you wish things had turned out. Ha happiness is the absence of suffering. Joy, however, has nothing to do with circumstances. It has nothing to do with the contingencies of our life. It has to do with a profound, pervasive sense of well-being, whatever situation you may be in. Jesus promised joy to his disciples, and, and you see this with his disciples. His disciples go through persecution. Peter ends up in prison. Paul ends up in prison. They faith the death sentence. They get whipped. They get scourged. They get mocked. And yet the Bible repeatedly says in the book of Acts that they had joy. Joy characterized their life. They suffered, and yet they were joyful. You see this with Jesus as well. The Bible says, for the joy set before him, he suffered the pain of the cross. For the sake of joy, he suffered. What a different way of talking about things. And many times the Bible, at least uh, six or seven times, it tells us something like this. Count it all joy. Count it all joy when you, when you suffer. Count it all joy when you fall into tribulation. That only makes sense if you begin to understand that joy is different than happiness. The joy that the Bible speaks about is the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord is the joy that is the Lord's by nature and becomes ours by grace. And that's got nothing to do with what goes on in your life. The joy that the Lord can give you is God's own joy. It's the kind of joy that having things go the right way can never give you. It's the kind of joy that having a great house and a great marriage and nice kids and a nice church and, and, and wealth and fame and cars and whatever you, else you want, it's the kind of joy that none of that can ever give you. And by the same means, it's the kind of joy that not having any of those things can never take away. Because it's the joy of the Lord. It's not a joy of circumstances. What blocks the fruit of the Spirit is the flesh, the deception that comes from the flesh. And the deception that we get with regard to that, with regard to joy, is this. There is repeatedly on us, as there was in Genesis chapter 3, the message, and it's told in a lot of different ways, the message that the way to be happy, the way to find ultimate joy, the way to be fulfilled is by doing what Eve did, by reaching out and grabbing something, getting something, not trusting God, but trusting your ability to look a certain way or act a certain way or to acquire certain things and have a certain amount of money and get a certain kind of car and have a certain kind of house, and that's where joy is. That's what joy is about. It's right there in Genesis 3. If you want to be joyful, that's what you have to do. Not only that, but in Genesis 3, you find a, a, a second thing. The enemy tells Eve that where joy is to be found is in the tree. And then the enemy tells Eve, if you read it carefully, you'll discern this, that she has a right to it. 
You have a right to it. That's why God's threatened, you know. That's why God, he doesn't want you to get this. You have a right to this, and he's trying to keep you from it. That's why he says don't eat it. Eve, you have a right to be happy. And the way to be happy is by reaching out and grabbing something. Reaching out and getting something. Quit relying on God because God can't be trusted and do it on your own. And the way to happiness is by actualizing your potentiality and reaching out and grabbing the tree. That's how you do it. That's, how, that's where happiness is to be found. And this is a deception that hits us in so many different ways repeatedly. It's all over the place in, in our culture and in our world. And this is why we fall into these kind of traps. When we buy into that deception, and we all do to some degree, we end up saying things like this. I'm not happy because... I'm not happy because of what my parents did. And I'm not happy because of the job I have. And I'm not happy because of the body I have. And I'm not happy because of the health that I don't have. And I'm not happy because of the spouse that I've got. And I'm not happy because my kids turn out the wrong way. And then we move to this blaming kind of a thing. We, we, we follow Adam and Eve in the deception, then we follow Adam and Eve in what they did because of the deception. We end up blaming things. The reason I'm not happy, it's, it's your fault. It's your fault. It's my job's fault. It's my health fault. It's my lack of money's fault. It's... It's, it's racial relations' fault. And then when that happens, we fall into the if-only trap. You've fallen into this before? It's the American way. If only I had, if only I had different kids, if only I had a different spouse, if only I had a different job, if only I didn't have this sickness, if only I didn't have this or that or the other thing, then I'd be happy. We really believe that. The grass is greener on the other side of the hill thing. And then you add to that the final element in Genesis 3, and that is you've got a right to it. You've got a right to it. You've got a right to be happy. Happiness defined as this. So what do we do? I've got a right to be happy. It's your fault that I'm not happy. I get rid of you. And so we load up our tanks and we go through life in pursuit of happiness and bulldoze everything that gets in the way of what we think happiness is. So if our spouse isn't making us happy, we're gone. If the kids aren't making us happy, we distance ourselves. If our culture's not making us happy, we live angry. And we try to strategize a way to get happy, and we bulldoze everything that comes in the way that we think is preventing us from being happy. <sighs> joy. How to arrive at joy. The beginning is to begin to see truth and pull back from error. Listen to this. And I think this is the beginning of the key to finding joy in your life. Realize this. The Word. We're sanctified by the Word. The Word is truth. This is what sets us free. The Word, the Bible, never promises us happiness. This is a weird thing to say on a sermon on joy. The Bible never promises us happiness. And the Bible never says that we have a right to be happy. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't. And the Bible never says that happiness should be a goal of our life. That is part of what our culture says, but it's not part of what the Bible says. And so long as we think that happiness is found in what we do, so long as we think that we have a right to happiness, so long as we think that we can, through our own strategies and efforts, find happiness, you'll never be happy. The poster is right that says that happiness is like a butterfly. As long as you're chasing it, you'll never find it. But if you just stop, then it will land on your shoulders. That's one of the posters. That's true. Joy posters usually aren't true, but that one has got some truth to it. Joy begins to happen. Try this out. Joy begins to bring, come about in our life as a fruit of the Spirit. And that happens when we follow the Spirit and begin to surrender. Begin to surrender our right to happiness. 
begin to realize that as a disciple of Christ, we're called sometimes to suffer for righteousness' sake. Count it all joy when you enter into suffering. Why? One of the reasons is because that will cure you from the addiction to happiness. And happiness prevents joy from ever happening. Surrender your right to happiness to the Lord. Surrender your entire being to the Lord. Surrender your strategies to finding happiness to the Lord. The Bible says crucify yourself and enter into the suffering of the Lord. And when we enter into the suffering of the Lord, we begin to discover the joy of the Lord. I hope you're following him on this because it sounds very paradoxical. But it's truth. The joy of the Lord comes from being dependent on the Lord for joy. When we behold the joy of the Lord, what is his by nature becomes ours by grace. As we see the joy of the Lord, as it becomes concrete and vivid, when we begin to experience the truth of the joy of the Lord over us, as real as we've experienced the deception of the world, the joy of the Lord begins to be ours. I don't know where we got the picture that, that the Lord isn't joyful, but it's kind, of, it's kind of widespread. We don't usually think of God as being happy, as God as being joyful. I, I don't know where we got the picture of God as being this sort of nasty old man up in heaven who's always kind of disgruntled, and he's got a, a spear in one hand and a lightning bolt in the other hand, and he's just waiting for a moment for these puny little human beings to tick him off a little bit more, and he's going to throw them both at us. I don't know where we got that idea, because the Bible consistently portrays God as being joyful. God is joyful. If you're going to picture him, picture him with a smile on his face. In spite of all the pain of the world, in spite of all the problems of the world, God at least is above it enough to keep his sense of well-being that's eternal and unconditional. Not only that, but one of the things the Lord is joyful about is you, is you, is you, is you. He delights over you. He rejoices over you, the Bible says, with singing. He claps his hands in delight over you. He dances because of you. Can you picture a father, the newborn baby? I did this with one of my babies. I just kind of like, no, you know, you, you just kind of like, this is great. You're happy. Your baby is born. Can you picture the Lord being that happy over you? Can, is it, can, can, you, can you see that? The Lord is joyful. Joy begins to be a byproduct in our life when we quit trying to chase it in all the ways that our culture says to chase it and we begin to experience that, what I just said, as being true as opposed to everything else that the enemy would have us believe is true. The main deception we have to confront, and I'll close with this, is the message that we get in a lot of different ways that we're not worth rejoicing over. There have been people that I, 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 I've said to them, can you picture the Lord rejoicing over you? And they can't. They, they, it feels weird. It feels awkward. And the reason is because they have internalized the poison that says, you're not worth rejoicing over. Give me a break. No one smiles when you come into the room. People don't even like to really be around you. You're not the kind of person that makes a lot of people happy to be around. If people really knew you, they'd never really want to be around you. Oh, you can put on a good facade, but really, if people ever find out what you're really about, they're not going to like you. You're not worth rejoicing over. And people who throw a party for you are doing it just because you know how to fake it. The real you is not very likable. And we internalize that. And so long as you internalize that, you can chase happiness the carrot on the string all your life, and you'll never find happiness. Joy comes when the truth of the Lord begins to break through that deception. There's a, 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 young, a young man named Dan. I'll call him Dan. I'll call him a young man. I, I, I take a lot of care to protect the anonymity of people that I, I use because some of them I still know. Um, so I'll call him Dan. 
Dan was, as many of us are much of the time, was a depressed person. And like many of us, the reason was because he's been polluted by lies and deceit in the world. He, 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 he believed the Lord, he believed the truth of the Lord, but it was something in the head, not in the heart. The root of his poison, the root of his poison was, was really a memory of a father who, uh, who, who raged an awful lot, raged at him an awful lot, who drank too much. And when he'd get drunk, he got mean and would say nasty things and do nasty things. There was other problems as well, but, but there was this problem. He'd gone through the legalism stage of trying to act happy when he wasn't, and he went through the blaming stage of trying to just live as a victim of, of his father, and none of those changed him. Change began to come in Dan's life when he began to see and experience the truth that the Lord rejoices over him. The Lord rejoices over him. And that the voice of the Lord is far more important than the voice of his dad. And that's what begins to bring freedom about. I encourage Dan to do this, and I'll encourage you to do this, to have some time where you just set aside in the evening maybe or whenever you can be free. Go for a walk maybe, or, or, uh, or, or I like to sit down in the living room, turn on some music. And just be who you are. I told Dan, just be who you are. If, if you're mad, be mad. If you're angry, be angry. If you're depressed, be depressed. Don't try to be anything other than you are. Just be who you are, but let the Lord be who he is. And try to see, ask the Holy Spirit to show you the truth of who the Lord is. Not in an abstract way, but in a concrete way. He had a, he had a particular memory that really plagued him of, being, of hiding in a, in, a, in a bathroom closet, a scared seven-year-old, while his father was running around the house looking for him, screaming, saying, I'm going to kill you when I find you. I'm going to kill you when I find you. He was drunk and in a rage. And he was hiding in this bathroom closet. And that was graphic. That was vivid. And that communicated to him a, repeatedly a message about who he was. The message it communicated was that no one really rejoices over you, do they? No, you make people mad. Dan did this where he would meet with the Lord I said, picture the Lord like you'd picture me. Talk to the Lord like you'd talk to me. Let him show you how he rejoices over you. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you the Lord in a vivid, concrete way, rejoicing over you. And one of the times, one of the times in, his, in his, his period with the Lord, he went back to this memory where he was in this, in this bathroom closet locked up. And he heard his father screaming and raging, so angry. And he was scared. He just pictured this as he was in this time with the Lord. And then he heard a knock on the door, on the door of this closet. And at first he didn't answer because, because uh, you know, he was so afraid. But then he, he said the voice of his father vanished in the background, and he heard the voice of Jesus. Jesus peeked open the thing, opened the door. It was a little closet, and said, it's me. It's your real dad. You can come out now. It's safe. And at first, Dan was, was afraid to do that. He said that he was afraid, but the Lord finally talked him into it, convinced him that it's going to be safe. And Dan finally comes out of this closet. This is all going on, and the Spirit's working here to bring about healing and freedom from the flesh. Dan steps out of this closet, and he enters into an auditorium. That's a big party. And the, the place is lined up with people, and they all have these white robes on. They have all these white robes on, and they're wearing party hats. And Jesus is wearing a party hat and one of these, has one of these horns that he blows. The Lord works in mysterious ways. And as soon as he steps out, they throw this great big party. There's this great big party. And Dan says, what's this about? And Jesus says, it's for you. And Dan says, why? What did I do? It's not my birthday. And Jesus says, it's because you belong to me. It's because you belong to me. 
And then he picks him up, and he tells Dan, didn't you know that I, I said it? In Luke 15, that when one of you comes to me, all the angels in heaven rejoice. There's a party going on over you. There's a party going on over you. And all the message that you've internalized, all the poison that you've internalized that says you're not worth rejoicing over, that leads you to try to find happiness in so many other ways, that's a lie. It's when God's voice becomes experienced as being true, as true as the lies we've experienced, that joy comes about as a product in our life. I don't know where you are this morning. I, I suspect that a lot of you, like me, go through periods where and the world's a depressing place. My wife and I were talking about this last night. The world sometimes is a very depressing place, and it's normal to get depressed sometimes. Some of us have things that go deeper than that, where the depression's not about the world, but it's about ourselves. And the Lord can heal that. The Lord wants to heal that. The Lord wants to show you his love and bulldoze all the, over all the other voices and messages that you've had that have said otherwise. This morning, I want you to know that as we're dismissed, the altar's open for you. There'll be people up here who would love to pray with you about that. To begin to break through, to bre begin to break through the stronghold that that's had on your life. You don't need to go your whole life like that. A child of God is nobody's victim. The one thing you do have a right to as a Christian is the joy of the Lord. Let's stand and close in prayer. Lord, I thank you. Lord, I thank you that, that you, I thank you for, for being you, that you are a joyful God. I thank you that you are a God who claps his hands, who gets almost giddy with joy, who does a dance over what you've done for us. We know, Lord God, that who we are and what we do and what we think isn't always worth rejoicing over. Maybe it's not even usually worth rejoicing over, Lord, but when we believe in you, you take who you are and you give it to us by grace. And that's what you rejoice over. And I pray, Lord God, that for every person here this morning, you begin to break the stronghold of deception that is rooted there in their lives and begin to show yourself as the dancing God, the joyful God. And more than all the galaxies of this world, you rejoice over each one of us because we belong to you. God, through the power of your spirit, make it real in our life. In your name we pray. Amen.